Hello. Well, welcome, New Life Fellowship. It's good to be here with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Eric. Uh, I apologize. I was out there. We have a little thing for our youth students and some of our graduating students. Uh, we're having Chipotle back there. And so I was just enjoying myself a little bit too much. I came in here just now uh, realizing that I have to preach God's word to you today. So, um, But I, I have a full stomach. I have a full heart today. So um, I'm so grateful for all of these college students here who are uh, graduating and moving out into you know, the quote-unquote real world now. And so um, you know, we'll be praying for you guys and, and, and pray that God guides you. And, and hopefully today's message is helpful as you move into kind of the working world because we will talk a little bit about our work today. If you've been with us, we've been in a series called uh, Future Hope, Love, and Holiness, and we're really traveling through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and if you've kind of caught on by now, we've been really talking about how do we live as Christians uh, in sort of a world that may, may be a little bit more hostile to our faith, um, that may pressure us in certain ways. And if you remember two weeks ago, I preached on Paul's prayer at the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if you remember, he talks about the past and present future uh, relationship with the church. And then now in chapter 4, he's going to get into ethics and how the church should live. And so he prays this prayer about living blameless and holy lives, if you remember. And really, we've mentioned that blameless living, or holy living, sorry, was really our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, this loyalty is what will spur on people to kind of, the, our culture to have a, a little bit of a hostility towards us. But really, Paul prays that we be holy and blameless because our blameless living will actually help us to build trust uh, and, and, and really build love with those who are not a part of our faith. And today, uh, last week, we talked about holiness. This week, we're going to talk more about that blameless aspect. And so we're going to pick up on this theme of blameless living today. Uh, and so I just want to point this out really quickly. We'll read it all together um, uh, in a second here. But in verse 12 of our passage, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 uh, to 12, at the very end of our passage, this is the last sentence, if you would, the purpose by which Paul is now saying these things. He says that so that you may walk properly before outsiders and de be dependent on no one. He says uh, all of these things that I'm going to talk about are so that you can walk properly before people who don't believe the things that we believe as Christians. And so this is really the way in which Paul wants us to live. And if you notice here, we're going to focus really a lot on verse 11. And just to give you a little summary, a little taste of what we're going to talk about today is in verse 11. He says, aspire to live quietly. Not in a brash way, uh, in a way that is bold, of course, but not loudly, but in a quiet manner. And so with that said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 12, a very short passage. At this time, if you're able, would you rise as we read God's word together? We do this out of honor and reverence uh, for the word of God. We believe that these are the very words of God himself, and so we stand for them. I'll read this for us. I'll say this is the word of the Lord after the reading. If you could respond with thanks be to God, uh, I'll pray for us, and then I'll seat you after uh, the reading of God's word. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to live blameless lives before others. Lord, we pray that you would produce in our hearts a humility to learn 
but also a love, God, that is so radical. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us, teaching us. We pray this all in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can write these three points down. Uh, we have normally three points. Um, the first point is called quietly ambitious for work. Quietly ambitious for church is our second point. And then lastly, we're going to be talking about a quietly ambitious Savior. Okay? So three points. Quietly ambitious for work. Um, uh, I don't normally do this, but uh, just as a show of hands, okay? I know this is a little bit, you know, counter to what we normally do. But by a show of hands, who here has played the game or knows the game Settlers of Catan? How many? Okay, this service a lot more. First service, no one knew what it was. Um, well, for those of you who know the game Settlers of Catan, you know that the way to divide the church is either you inject politics into the church or you inject a nice, fun game of Settlers of Catan. This is an easy, sure way to divide the church because it gets so heated, it gets so contentious. And the reason why, for those of you who don't know Settlers of Catan, it's because the goal of the game is to get 10 points, 10 victory points. Uh, but the way to get there is you have to build structures. And every structure you build, in essence, gives you a point. But during the game, uh, which usually includes about four people or so, the other three people can actually gang up against you and block you from building certain things. And so you can kind of jack certain people in terms of building certain structures. And this is why the game gets so heated. And uh, uh, during my seminary years, uh, every Monday at 8 p.m., we had a standing Settlers of Catan game with all of these different seminarians. And I still remember we would go over to my friend Isaac's place, uh, and there would be three of us, Chase, Danny, myself, and Isaac, and we'd all play Settlers of Catan. And in fact, Danny uh, lives here in Washington now, and he actually comes to our church on occasion. Um, but Danny was one of the best Settlers of Catan people ever. Uh, he, he was so good at this game, and his strategy was really simple. What he would do is he would tell us at the very beginning of the game, he would basically prove to us, look, guys, I'm the weakest player. Don't attack me. Don't block me. Don't worry about me. I'm not going to get anywhere, guys. Like, don't worry. Look at, you know, over there. Look at that guy over there. Like, he's building so many things. He has four victory points. I only have two right now. Like, don't worry about me. I'm not going anywhere. I haven't built anything yet. And in fact, he would. He would be telling us the truth, and he would be the weakest player. But quietly... Over the course of the game, he'd be building, building, building quietly. And we, he would go unnoticed. And we'd be blocking the most powerful person on the board. And we'd be blocking, blocking, blocking. And then finally, <clears throat> towards the end of the game, we'd notice, oh, my gosh, he has eight victory points. He's almost going to get ten. And then by that time, it's too late. He won. He would win. This is what he would do to us every single time. Every single time, he'd convince us that we were the, we were the more powerful players. He was the weakest one. And so he'd go by quietly. In fact, it got uh, to the point where I would tell people from the very beginning, I know Danny's the weakest player, but let's just block him anyhow because this is how he wins. Let's just block him from the very beginning. Now, the reason why I mentioned this is because if you look at verse 11 again, this is sort of the centerpiece to what Paul is saying here. This to me is kind of the centerpiece of what uh, is sort of the main message that Paul has for the church. And he says this, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Paul is saying this, that in order to, in, in some sense, win outsiders, don't draw attention to yourself. Don't show yourself to be the strongest in the room. You don't have to draw attention to yourself. In fact, live quietly. Live unassuming lives in, 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 in another sense. Uh, it, it, I want you to think about this, right? Uh, this is something that came to my mind in our first service, but think about this aspect of love. I think in the Christian church, when we think about Christianity, we oftentimes think that Christians need to be bold, which we do need to be bold. But in another sense, when we think of boldness, we think of loud. We think of Christians who are loud and, you know, shout our faith and we're bold for our faith. But actually, 
If you think about the concept of love, love is actually very quiet. Uh, think about the most loving acts we see or we don't see, right? One of the most loving things I think I've personally seen is when a mom wakes up in the middle of the night, right, because her baby is crying and she feeds that baby from her own body. No one sees it. No one knows about it. But this is an act of love that's quiet, unassuming. No one knows about it. Or think about at school, right? If there's a bully at school and he's bullying a kid and a teenager comes over, a good teenager comes over and then comforts that kid after the bullying uh, happens, right? This is a quiet, mannered way of loving. And love oftentimes is actually very, very quiet. It's unassuming. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's not self-promotional. It actually promotes other people. It's very quiet. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. How do you become successful in this world? How do you become successful at work? I think some of you would say something like this. You have to make yourself indispensable. Uh, you have to stand out from amongst the sea of coworkers. You have to get noticed. Uh, in some sense, you have to get some kind of glory and honor so that your bosses, your managers notice you so that you can get the raise, so that you can get the promotion. In other words, the world will tell you, if you want to become successful, be self-promoting. Promote yourself. Let people see how brilliant and skilled you are at your job and let it shine forth. You have to promote yourself. And yet, I want you to look at this passage, this verse 11. This word for aspire is this word ambitious. It's almost like, it has this connotation of like be ambitious and be loud. It's like be loudly ambitious, but look what Paul's saying. He's saying be loudly ambitious to be quiet. Like be so ambitious, but be ambitious to be quiet, he's saying. And look at what Ben Witherington III uh, says. He's another commentator that I've been reading alongside Gordon Fee to prepare for these sermons. He says this word aspire is used regularly, regularly used in political and philanthropic, uh, philanthropic contexts of achievement of political ends by means of benefactions. That is of aspiring to do just the opposite of living quietly. And so what Paul is saying is, look, don't aspire for yourself. Don't aspire for self-promotion. Aspire to live for other people in some sense is what he's saying. Look, here in, in, um, in 1 Thessalonians, in this particular chapter, Paul is actually addressing two types of people in the church, uh, in Thessalonian church, not in our church, but in Thessalonian church. And uh, in point one, this point, we're going to talk about the first group, and then in point two, we'll talk about the second group. Um, but the first group of people that he's talking to are rich patrons, uh, and you have to understand in Paul's day, there was a system called patronage. And it wasn't like this explicit system that everyone talked about, but it was kind of known, right? Which is there would be a rich patron who had lots of wealth, lots of authority, lots of whatever. And this patron would sometimes bless a client. And this client would receive money, resources, whatever it might be. And this client would not work. They would be lazy. Uh, but this patron would give the client all of this money. And in turn, what the client would do was go about spreading the glory and honor of the patron. Because back in those days, it, it, it was a very oral culture, meaning they spread news orally. They didn't have iPhones or newspapers or publishing, right? They spread news orally as well as it was a quid pro quo society, meaning you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. I'll give you money. Uh, I'll give you some kind of generosity, but you in turn are going to spread my name. You're going to spread my glory. And in some sense, what Paul is doing here is he's speaking against the system of patronage. And he's saying uh, on one hand to these people, look, like, like, I know it seems generous of you to give generously to these people, but, but, but you're receiving all this glory and honor. Live quietly. 
And in fact, for rich patrons, the, the worst thing they could have done is to work with their hands. This was degrading work. This was low-class work for those who were uneducated, for those who, who didn't know what they were doing. Hey, this is your work. My work is to, is to receive glory, to be rich, to be wealthy, these kinds of things. And so Paul is telling these rich people, hey, work with your hands, contribute to society, contribute to the church. Like, stop, stop pretending like you're being generous and virtuous. And, and actually be generous and be virtuous by working with your hands and by living quietly. You see what he's saying there? Um, the closest thing that I could think about in terms of our culture is this thing that we do in our culture called virtue signaling. I'm sure you guys have heard of this, right? It's when you, uh, 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 for very good reasons, right, you might actually have a heart for this cause and you might post on social media, like, I believe in this cause and everyone else should believe in this cause. But in reality, you post on social media not only because you believe in the cause, but also because you want to signal to everyone that you're a morally virtuous person. And this is similar to what the patrons are doing. They're saying, look at me, I'm so generous. Look at me, I'm so great. Look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm but, but, but in return, all these clients are going out and spreading their name. Look at how morally virtuous this person is. Um, now, I'm not pointing the fingers because I, I can point the finger right back, right back at myself. I, I've done virtue signaling myself. I'll give you a clear example of this. Um, if you guys were with us in March, uh, sorry, not in March, but in mid-2020, uh, 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 if you guys remember, George Floyd murder happened, uh, riots and looting broke out uh, in Seattle and in Bellevue. And if you remember, a lot of stores got destroyed. Uh, glass was broken. Um, there was graffiti, right? All these things were happening. And so um, our, I got our pastoral staff together and I said, hey, guys, like, we have to do something. So let's go and let's try to clean up one of the cities, either South, uh, Seattle or Bellevue. And what we found out is Seattle has enough help already. What we realized Bellevue was kind of underlooked, so we, we decided to go to Bellevue and help out and clean up and do those things. And so we did. We went out, and that was great. And we felt called by God to do that, and it was a great thing. But, but I decided, hey, guys, why don't, we, why don't we do this? Why don't we take pictures and post them on social media to show the church how wonderful we are? I mean, I didn't say it like that, but I was just like, hey, like, why don't we post these pictures on social media? And, of course, deep inside my heart, I wanted you guys to see it. I wanted you guys to see how virtuous and, and, and wonderful our pastors were, and you guys did, and you guys were so kind, and you commented on that social media post saying, wow, look at this new life pastors, they're great, I love my church, blah, 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 right? And I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. I virtue signal all the time. I think the apostle Paul would have said to me, hey, this is great, work with your hands, do the dirty work, but then live quietly, don't let anyone know about this. In fact, Ben Witherington III would put it like this. He says this, Paul suggests that conventional forms of status-seeking and improving of honor ratings were, left, uh, were to be left aside. Christians are not called to establish their names in the public sphere and seek prestige. They are to be ambitious in a different and perhaps counterintuitive and quiet way. Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 would put it like this. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And of course, Jesus is not saying you can literally not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but he's saying, look, be so quiet about it because that's what love does. Love is quiet. It, it doesn't seek self-promotion. It doesn't seek to be honored. It doesn't seek those things. It seeks to promote other people. Look, everything is for the gram, right? Everything is for the gram these days. And Paul would say, put down the Insta, put down the TikTok, and just work for the betterment of others. Don't be loud about it. You don't have to post anything. Just work for other people in a quiet way because you're promoting other people. Look, in your workplaces, let me ask you, are you working harder than everyone else because you want that promotion? Because that, in, in some sense, think about it, that's self-promotion. You, what you're doing is self-promotion. You're working hard so that you might be promoted. 
But what Paul is telling us here is, look, like, can you work in such a way where you're promoting other people in your workplace? Like, literally, work for other people's promotions. Like, work for your boss's promotion. Work for your manager's promotion. Work so that they might appear to look so good and that you get no credit, but they get all the credit, or work so hard that your coworker might get the promotion, or your team might get the promotion. Work so that other people get promotions except for yourself. Work in such a way where you're giving and making other people look better. And if we live this way, I mean, this is a radical way of living. To not live for the promotion, not to work for the promotion, but to work for the promotion of other people. And this is what Paul is saying. Be quiet. Live quietly. Work with your hands. Work for the betterment of other people. Do not promote yourself. <clears throat> but I know some of you are thinking this, but Eric, why should I work and promote this billion-dollar company? They already have enough money. What about me? Right? Or, or why should I work hard to promote my boss? My boss already makes six figures. I make only this much, right? Why should I promote him or her? Or why should I promote my coworkers? They're sleazy or they, they don't work with me or they're, they're evil. They're my enemies, right? All of them, they don't contribute to me. They don't love me. They don't care about me. And Christ would say, nobody cared about me either, but I died for you. That's what the gospel is, right? The gospel is no one cared about Jesus. We were all sinners. We were all idolaters. And we said, we don't care about Jesus. And Jesus said, but you know what? I'm going to love you. Think about the book of Daniel. I've been talking about the book of Daniel almost every week now, but think about Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar did not like Daniel. The, the city of Babylon did not like Daniel. They did not like the Jewish people, and yet Daniel worked for their good. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 7, look at what Jeremiah the prophet calls the Israelite people to do. He says this. They're living in Babylon, mind you. He says this, but seek the welfare of the city. That's seek the welfare of Babylon. Seek the welfare of the soldiers who came into Jerusalem and murdered and slaughtered and burned down your own. Seek their welfare. Where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And in the same way, this is how Christians are to live quietly. This is how we're to live quietly. Working with our hands for the betterment of others, not seeking recognition or fame, but seeking to love our companies, our coworkers, our teams, and really promoting them, seeking their welfare over our own. So let me ask you, do you try and make your manager look really good by picking up their slack and not saying to anybody that you've picked up their slack, but you're doing it so that they could look good? Do you work hard and pick up your team member's slack and make them look good? Are you a problem solver and look for solutions that can benefit the entire team even though you get no credit for it? Do you seek the welfare of your company, your team, your organization, whatever it might be, whatever it is that you do? Do you seek the welfare of them first above yourself? Look, I'm going to say something, and I probably shouldn't say it because it will defeat the very purpose by which I've been preaching for like the last five, ten minutes. But, um, but look... <laughs> I'm telling you, the kinds of people who do get promotions, though, in companies are the kinds of people who actually work this way. Right? The people, in some sense, who get exalted are the people who humble themselves. It's just kind of wisdom. I'm not saying that you should do it to get the promotion, but I'm saying that wisdom tells us, it doesn't happen all the time, mind you, but, but wisdom will tell us that actually the people who do get promoted are the kinds of people who lay down their lives for other people. It's the kind of people who look out for their bosses, who look out for their managers, who look out for their coworkers in such a selfless way. Those are the kinds of people who actually get the promotions. Why? Because love works really, really hard. It does. Like, like when you are working for somebody else and you work, are working for them because you actually love them, man, that, that turns a whole nother gear. 
I mean, you will work incredibly hard. I mean, I'm telling you, I never thought I could work this hard in my life. But when I, now I have three kids and I love them all to death, I'm working crazy. Like, I've, I've done things I never thought I'd do in my life because I love them. Love will drive you to another gear of work. And I'm telling you, when you sacrifice for others, when you promote others, you'll actually, in essence, kind of in some sense, earn a promotion. Now, again, I don't, I don't, you, but you see now why. I didn't want to say that because it kind of defeats the purpose of what I was saying. I don't want you to work for a promotion. I really want you to work for, for the promotion of others. But wisdom tells us that these are the kinds of people that will be exalted in due time. Um, an example of this is um, I mentioned her in our first service, and she was uh, sitting over here in the front row, and I'll mention her again. But uh, there's a woman at our church, and many of you know her. Her name is Jessica Bay. She's one of our deaconesses. And um, Jessica Bay is uh, just one of, like, she, like, there's no question that anybody can debate me on this. There's, there's nobody at this church who loves this church, who loves the people of this church more than Jessica Bay. And, and Jessica Bay works tirelessly, and she doesn't require any credit. In fact, uh, during the first service, as I was mentioning her, she was just sitting, like, curled over, like, just in agony and pain the entire time I was talking about her. Um, because she just didn't, and I didn't even ask for her permission, because I was like, she's going to tell me no. Like, I can't say it, but I was going to say it anyhow. But she's an absolute model for this live quietly and work with your hands. Um, she does our, she leads a community group. She's a community group coach. She uh, invented and uh, applied our bridge groups, which was a solution for our church that we never thought of until she thought of it. Um, she is a deaconess. She's on our prayer team. She leads our prayer team. Um, and, and she does so much more for her family. She's always giving selflessly, sacrificially, and never requires anybody to acknowledge her ever. And she didn't want any recognition, but now I'm going to give her recognition. I'm going to, in some sense, exalt her now because in some sense, like, when I was looking at our church, I was, like, noticing all of these fruits. And when I say fruits, not, like, literal fruits, but, like, you know, fruits of the Spirit type of fruit. Like, the people are, like, happy and joyful in this part of our church. People are growing here in this part of our church, fruits here in our church. And I was like, there's no one, like, here. Like, who's here? Why are there so much fruits here? Why are there so many fruits here? And then I started investigating. I started digging behind the fruit, and, and I would see, oh, just like a bay was behind this. What the? And then I would dig behind this fruit, and I was like, oh, Jessica Bay's behind here. And then I, I dig behind this fruit, and I was like, Jessica Bay's there. And she, like, be hiding behind all this fruit was Jessica Bay. And, and because of that, I'm just, like, now, like, I'm, I'm like, man, she, like, and I want to exalt her. Because in some sense, these are the kinds of people that we want to exalt. We want to have these people as models for the way in which we live. So let's move on to our second point, quietly ambitious for the church. Um, the second group of people that Paul is addressing here are not only the rich patrons, but he's addressing the lazy clients, okay? And it, it's, it, it's the clients who don't work. Uh, they are lazy, and they're simply receiving aid and spreading word about this person. That's all they're doing. In fact, these clients would suck up resources from the church, too. They would suck up resources from other people in the church. They would live off the generosity of the church members. They were not contributing anything to this church, now, it has to be said here that Paul is not addressing people who are unable to work due to life circumstance or due to illness. He's not addressing these people, right? In fact, he believes that the church should help these kinds of people, right? Uh, so, uh, so he's not speaking to these kinds of people. Also, Paul, mind you, is not talking about homemakers, right? He's not talking about people who don't have a, an official title or an official position, if you would, right? He's not, uh, uh, although homemakers didn't earn a living in the traditional sense, they still worked in cooperation with their spouse to care for their households. So he's not talking to people who don't, like, have these official titles or positions or work, if you would. But what Paul is referring to here are just lazy folks, are just people who can work, but they decide not to work. And they decide to suck up all the generosity of the people around them and contribute nothing to anybody. 
And you see how unloving that is, right? It's, you're just receiving, 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 but you don't contribute anything to anything. And so he's getting on the case of these kinds of people, people who are lazy and don't want to contribute. And this is why Paul talks about brotherly love in verses 9 and 10. Look what he says here. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And so in some sense, these clients were uh, more than helping and serving and contributing to the church. They were actually taking from the church. And, and so what Paul is saying here is, on one sense, he's congratulating the church. He's saying, look, guys, you did a great job. Look, you guys supported not only this church in Thessalonica, but you're also supporting a church in Macedonia. Great job, guys. <clears throat> Fantastic job. Like you, guys are, you guys are doing such an amazing job in terms of contributing to the church, to contributing to the needs of others, for being generous, for serving, for doing all of these things. Great job, church. And in some sense, I want to take Paul's posture here. And I want to say the same thing to you folks here at New Life Fellowship. I want to say to you, like, man, like, I feel the same exact way, the same exact way Paul feels right now in this letter uh, here in this place. Like, I feel overjoyed when I think about every single one of you. That in some sense, you know, you guys are doing so much. You guys are serving and sacrificing and contributing and doing all of these things, and it fills my heart up with joy. I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here, but I, I prom I'm going to start boasting about our church, but I promise I'm really boasting about you, okay? Um, before, let's back up to pre-pandemic, okay? Pre-pandemic, we had about 300 adults that would worship week in and week out with us, some, something like that, roughly around that. Um, but pre-pandemic, we also only had about six people worshiping with us online. Uh, and two of those people were my mom and my dad, okay? Um, and they were worshiping all the way from Hawaii. Uh, but, but now, post-pandemic, we're back up to our pre-pandemic numbers. We have about 300 people worshiping between two services, roughly, week in and week out. But now, on top of that, we have about 70 to 80 people worshiping with us online, uh, live, weekly. Uh, you know, on the eyeballs or whatever, uh, they're watching with us here. And welcome, by the way, online viewers. Um, uh, so so in all, all this to say, our church has been growing. And a lot of you here are new, and we welcome you. We're so glad that you're here joining us. And, and there are a lot of new faces, a lot of new people coming in. And all this to say, the church has been growing. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, uh, I mentioned this in our membership class yesterday. And I mentioned it throughout many of my sermons, and I'll mention it here again. But this is what Paul says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, meaning he called pastors like myself, pastors like Pastor Kenny, pastors like Pastor Carl. He called people like us, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, to equip you all for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is this. Our, our church is being built up right now. Uh, it's being built up in faith, in love, and all these wonderful things. And guess why? It's not because I did something right. It's not because Pastor Kenny did something right. It's not because Pastor Clara did something. It's because you all took the challenge up, and you guys took the calling up and said, I'm going to minister. I'm going to serve. And I'm so grateful for each and every single one of you. Seriously, I'm so grateful that each and every single one of you said, you know what? I'm going to contribute to this church. I'm going to minister. I'm going to serve. I'm going to build this church up in love, and I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm so incredibly thankful for each and every single one of you. And if we're seeing any growth in this church, it's because of you. It has nothing to do with what we're doing. Uh, in fact, um, literally just this week at our staff meeting on Tuesday, I, I had not prepared this portion of my sermon yet, but our conversation was around what I, I asked our staff, like, what is the strength of our church? And, and one by one, Pastor Kenny said something to the effect of this. He said, man, people want to be here. Like, for some reason, people are just joyful. Like, they want to be around each other. Like, they love being around each other. They, like, want to be here. 
And then Pastor Clara said something to the effect of, there are so many people who are so amazing and the ministry would not be possible hadn't God brought these people here. In other words, what she was saying was like, like, like the only reason why hospitality ministry is doing well is because like God happened to bring this person. Like if she, if she or he were not here, like it would, it would be terrible. But, but they took up the call and they're doing it and it's amazing. And so similar to Paul, I want to commend you all again. I know I did this a few weeks ago, but I want to do it again because Paul is doing it here. And when it comes to brotherly love, I'm going to quote from Paul right now. I have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Like, like I didn't teach you anything what Paul is saying. And I'm saying it here now, like, I didn't teach you anything. Like, God taught you himself to do these things. Like, I didn't teach you anything. Like, no one taught you. God himself taught you to do these things. And I'm amazed. I'm shocked at how generous our church is and how sacrificial our church is. So thank you. I, I did it two weeks ago, but I'll do it again. Thank you, CG leaders. Thank you, tech team, for serving week in and week out. Thank you to our video team who broadcast this service. Thank you to our worship team who, who, who lead us in songs. Thank you to our children's ministry team. Some of you served tirelessly last service and you're here worshiping this service. Thank you to our youth volunteers who are most of them are sitting out there right now with our youth students. Thank you to our hospitality team. You guys serve and you guys are so welcoming. I mean, so many people have told me that they feel welcomed when they come to this church and thank you. Thank you to our parking team. You wave and you welcome people in. You're the first people people see. Thank you. Thank you to our prayer team for praying. My goodness, no one sees you praying, but you pray all the time for us. Thank you to our Higher Grounds team for making our coffee and making it special every single week. Thank you to college leaders for those of you who sacrifice week in and week out at Wednesdays and put on a great service for everyone to have. Thank you for those of you who served in our one-off events like Easter and, and even the week after when we're serving ice cream. Thank you for serving. And thank you for those of you who contribute and give generously to this church week in and week out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are doing an amazing job. <clears throat> and in the same vein, the Apostle Paul says, great job. Now I'm going to challenge you more and more, he says, more and more. And in the same way, I, I, I want to speak uh, just like the Apostle Paul. You guys are doing a great job. Man, you guys are blessing people. You guys are sacrificial. You are serving. But now I want to ask you to do this more and more. Meaning this, there are some of you in this place who have been built up in Christ because of the sacrifice and service of other people, and I praise God for you. And I praise God that you have been built up in Christ this way. I'm so thankful that you've been built up in Christ because of the sacrifice and service of other people in this church. But now, as your pastor, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, and I want to encourage you to take a step forward and now to consider sacrificing and serving for other newcomers, for other people who are not yet a part of our church, to build this church up in love and in Christ, to work with your hands, to no longer just be consumers of the goodness that God has provided here, but now to be really those who sacrifice and work with their hands in quiet ways to build up this church in love and in Christ. Now, I know some of you are thinking this, hey, you know, Eric, thank you for the encouragement, thank you for the challenge, but you know, right now my life is just a little bit too hectic. I have a lot on my plate. Um, there's a lot going on, and, and man, I, 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 you know, I, just, I just can't do it right now. And my answer to you would be this, absolutely, I get it, I understand. I have compassion. Like, I, I know life gets really, really busy. Um, but let me, t let me kind of draw a parallel here. I'm going to tell you about something completely different, but then hopefully I'll be able to bring it back and encourage you with this, okay? Uh, I was listening to a, a podcast recently uh, with a fellow named Roland Fryer. If you don't know, Roland Fryer, Fryer is a, um, uh, he's a, 
He's an African-American economist out of Harvard, and this guy is literally a genius. He won the MacArthur Fellowship. Um, he's won other awards, and he's a literal genius. And he did some research around schools. And what he did is he researched charter schools, and he tried to look at, because there's such big disparities between great charter schools and not great charter schools. And so what he did was he tried to find what the differences were, and he felt like the differences would then be, the, uh, be kind of points in which if schools were to apply these things, they could actually grow their students. And so he listed out five things, but I just want to mention one of them. One of the keys that he found to education in terms of raising up students and growing students uh, to excel in, in their academia was this. He said, do not lower your standards. He said, teachers that lower their standards um, oftentimes do a disservice to their students, even though it may seem like the compassionate thing. So let me give you an example, right? He said, imagine this. Imagine there was a kid named Johnny. And Johnny is, uh, is doing poorly in school. Uh, and so you, you're a teacher. You meet with Johnny and you say, hey, what's going on? And Johnny says to you, you know what? Um, my mom, she's a single mom. She works all day. I have two younger siblings. I have to come and cook and clean for them. And so I don't have enough time for schoolwork. And that's why I'm failing. Like, I, I know I could do the work, but I just, I don't have enough time. And so a lot of great teachers, a lot of compassionate teachers will say this, man, Johnny, that's tough. Like, let, let me lower the standard for you. I, I know you could do the work, but let me just give you kind of, let me give you this little easy stuff to do, and then, you know, we'll just call it a day. I'll give you a good grade. You can pass. And he said, although that's the compassionate thing to do, he said, and although this may seem mean, he said, actually, the teachers that actually help these students the best are the ones who don't lower their standards. They're the teachers who say, hey, you know, Johnny, actually, like, that's really tough, and I'm so sorry, and man, that must be tough. Tell me more about it, but I believe in you, but I, I see potential in you, and you can do the things other students do. You can do it. And I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to help you, but, but I'm not going to lower the standards on you. I'm going to require the same things as other students. But guess what? In this adversity, you're going to grow a lot from it. Because he says this, right? Like, think about what life is. Life never apologizes to you. Life never says, I'm going to lower my standards. Right? Think about a sports game, right? Uh, imagine LeBron James, right? LeBron James comes to an NBA game. He had a tough week. Maybe, like, uh, you know, he had a really, really tough week. Uh, but he doesn't come to the game and say, hey, guys, I had a tough week. Can you lower your standards? Can you go easy on me today? I just want to dunk the ball over you just one time. Please, come on, man. Right? He just works harder. He has to work hard. He has to overcome those adversities. And, and in the same way, he says this is life, right? Life is such that it, it's always going to throw things at you. And there's always going to be reasons why you can't excel. But the people who excel, even despite those adversities, grow. And they actually persevere and they learn these like life skills and these characteristics and these things that will uh, go with them for long-term uh, kinds of things throughout life. And in the same way, I want to do the same for you. I get it. I know in every Christian's life, <clears throat> there are at least one to five reasons why serving right now is too difficult for you. And I get it. I, I'm pretty sure like I've been through that and I, maybe I would have not served either. And so I get it. I'm compassionate towards that. But as your pastor, I don't want to lower the standard. I want to challenge you that these kinds of things will always exist in your life. In fact, uh, you know, now that I'm married and I have three, like life gets crazier and crazier and crazier. And there are more and more and more reasons all the time for you to never serve. And so those reasons will always be there. And instead of lowering our standard, I want to train you to actually serve in the midst of this adversity, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of your own stuff, and learn to manage your time well, to work hard, to rest well, because this is life. And I want to train you in this way. And so don't get me wrong. I'm not asking you to burn yourself out. And I hope if you talk to anybody else that serves at our church, I hope, uh, you know, we, we talk about this at our staff level all the time. We never want to use and abuse servants. 
We never want to like drain you and, and, and just you know, leave you hanging and dry. We always want to make sure you never burn out. But I'm telling you, the key to never burning out is this, is if we all take it upon ourselves to contribute together. The reason why people burn out is because not all of us are taking the load together. But if 100% of us took 100% of the load, I'm telling you, we'd be able to distribute this work pretty evenly and there wouldn't be burnout in our church. And so I'm telling you, our heart at this church is not to burn you out, is not to do this, but to train you to live life, but to serve this community and to contribute with your hands. So don't hear me if you're burning out, just keep serving. Don't hear me spread yourself too thin. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying any of those things. But I am challenging you as your pastor and encouraging you. Hey, you know what? Life is always going to be busy, friends. And there's always going to be one to five great reasons why you shouldn't be serving. But I just want to challenge you, encourage you. I'm not guilting you. I'm challenging you. All right? Uh, so let's move on to our third and final point, a quietly ambitious Savior. Let's read verse 11 again because I want to summarize everything we've been saying here. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so what Paul is saying here is be ambitious to not receive credit. Be ambitious to not promote yourself, but to promote others. He says to mind your own affairs because what he's saying is this, like who, who cares if certain people are slacking or certain people, like just do what you're going to do well and love and work hard at it. Who cares about all these other things that might draw your attention away from the most important things? And then finally he says work with your hands. Do the degrading stuff. Do the things that no one else wants to do. Do the things that are, are low grade. You know, do all the things that no one else wants to do so that you can serve and love and contribute to other people. And this is the picture of a blameless Christian. The blameless Christian is someone who is so radically, okay, this is a summary now, so radically other-centered that they don't think about their own self. They don't think about their own self-promotion, but they're constantly thinking about promoting others around them. In church, at work, uh, at home, in their friendships, they're always thinking, how can I promote other people? How can I promote other people? How can I promote other people? Not draw attention to myself. And this is the picture of a blameless Christian, somebody who's walking diligently with the Lord. It's not the Christian, right, who's loud and stands up on their cafeteria table and preaches the gospel and says, here you sinners, right, come to know Jesus. Or it's not the Christian who stands at the corner of whatever and whatever and says, you sinners are going to go to hell, repent now, right, and they're loud, right. This is not the picture. It's the picture of a Christian who loves their boss and their company and serves it like no one else would serve it. It's the picture of someone who loves their community, their brothers and sisters in Christ, and serves them relentlessly. And then when asked, when asked by their non-Christian friends, hey, why do you live such a radically selfless life? You say, well, it's because of Jesus. And you just point back to Jesus. Come and see the man who did this to me. This is what the Samaritan woman says in John chapter 4. Come and see the Messiah who told everything about me. That's all you have to say. You live radically selfless lives. You're promoting other people. And when people ask you why, you say, because of this guy, Jesus. Because of what he did for me. And this is Christ. Right? Christ drew attention away from himself. Think back to Jesus' ministry. He's always saying, the Father. Don't look at me. The Father. I'm here because the Father sent me. I'm here because I reveal the Father. Like, it's not about me. It's about the Father. The Father, the Father. In fact, oftentimes when Jesus gets too popular, he upsets people by running away. And he's like, I don't want all this celebrity. I don't care about it all. I'm going to go be with the Father. Uh, in, in fact, he, he ends up spending his time not with the rich and the powerful, but he spends his time with the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the tax collector, the sinner, people who cannot contribute a single thing to him because he doesn't care about the attention. 
And finally, he died the death of a criminal. In, in other words, he became less than nothing. It's not that he became nothing. He became less than nothing to the point where people cursed his name. They, they said terrible things about Jesus, and yet he did it all. Why? Because he wanted to wash and cleanse us with the work of his hands. John 13, when he washes the disciples' feet with his hands, he's taking a degrading, low position to wash his servants. Uh, and what is he saying? Look, on the cross, this is what I'm doing for you. I'm working with my hands to wash and to cleanse you. Jesus was not loud. Yes, he preached in synagogues, but that's what pastors did. That's what rabbis did. Yes, he preached uh, uh, on lakes, but that's what they did. They didn't have these big structures like we do today. They had to preach at, uh, at lakesides and all these different places, but that's what rabbis did. He was not trying to be loud. In fact, scripture tells us that he died the death of a lamb, and lambs were quiet when they died. They were silent. Um, uh, at my previous church, uh, we went on a trip to Mongolia, and in Mongolia, it was really interesting. The missionary there was so adamant that he wanted me to see a lamb die. He was like, Eric, I want you to see a lamb die. <laughs> like, this is literally what he said to me. And, and he's like, I want you to come see. So he took me, and they butchered a lamb. I'm sorry, it's kind of gross. But, and I, I was like, I don't want to see this. Like, who wants to see a lamb die? But he wanted me to see this lamb die. And he said, I want you to see this because this is what the Bible is talking about when Christ was crucified on the cross. He said, the lamb is silent. And I still remember the, the lamb was. It was incredible. Like, they, they, they did some brutal things to the lamb, and yet the lamb never made a sound. The lamb was quiet. It just shook. It kind of did these things, but it was quiet. It was really strange and eerie, actually. And yet, this is how the Bible describes the death of Jesus Christ, as a quiet, silent lamb who was led to the slaughter. And he did all of this to wash us and to cleanse us of our sins and to give us a righteousness that was not our own. And then last of all, he ascended into heaven. Think about that moment when Jesus says, I'm going to give you something, uh, like I'm going to send you somebody that's better. Like it's better that I go away so that you get this guy named the Holy Spirit. And he's going to help you. He's going to establish a church. I'm going to go away. I'm going to leave it to you apostles. I'm going to equip and empower you, but I'm going to send back into heaven. And I'm going to let the Holy Spirit now take over. You guys are going to look at him. You guys are going to be empowered by him. I'll let him do the work now. Even in his ascension, even though he sits at the right hand of the Father, he still, he still allowed the apostles and the Holy Spirit to establish and build his church. Jesus Christ lived quietly. He worked with his hands, and he calls us to live the same life, friends. And I'm telling you, if we live the life that Christ lived, if we die the same death that he did, which is over and over again, self-sacrificial, self-less like promoting of others, right? If we live this kind of life, we can change and transform the people around us, friends. We can change them with the love of Christ, just as Christ changed us. And so, friends, I want to encourage you. I want to empower you to live quiet lives to work with your hands, and to mind your own business. Amen? Let me pray for us. And Lord Jesus, I know, I, I just want to confess first, Lord, that I know that just as I've heard you signal, Lord, there are times when I do things, Lord, not because I simply want to do them out of love, but because, Lord, I, I want the attention and so, Lord, forgive me. And, and, Lord, I know that there are many people in this room who are similar to me, Lord, who we've done things, we've loved other people, not because we actually want to, but because, Lord, we thought that that would get us a promotion, that would give us some glory or honor in some sense. And, Lord, we come to you again asking your son Jesus to wash us clean, to forgive us of our iniquity, to forgive us of our transgressions. 
and to give us a hope once again, Lord, that we can live a selfless life, Lord, a life that promotes others, a life that serves others, a life that gives to others, a life where we give to not only our organizations that we work for, but also the church in which we live, move, and breathe, Lord. And so we pray that you would build this radical, selfless love within us, Lord. And God, we ask that when outsiders look inwards, when they look into the church, Lord, that they would see people not loud, not condescending, but Lord, people who are filled with this radical love of Christ. Uh, We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.